I'm reading for, from my uh, third book in the series, uh, Trugona, and it's just been out this week, so it's really fresh. Uh, the prologue. There it is again, a knock on the door, urgent, loud, determined. A sudden draft hits her bare ankles and sends a shiver up her spine. She is standing in the hall, the outline of her body silhouetted against the dim light that filters down the staircase. Too scared to switch on the light, she's trying hard to remember where she put her mobile phone. She wouldn't feel so vulnerable if, it, if she could hold it in her hands, knowing she'd only have a few buttons to press for help. Did she leave it on a charger in the kitchen, or is it still in the pocket of her jeans on the chair beside her bed? Another knock. This time, it's definitely more urgent, maybe also more desperate. Is it her neighbor worried that her 17-year-old daughter hasn't come home from a night out with her friends? Or the man from across the street looking for his cat? Worth a small fortune, the little spoiled to death, to death animal escapes whenever the opportunity rises, especially when it's getting dark. No, if, if it were someone she knew, they would have called her name by now, having seen that the light in her bedroom is still on. They'd know she'd be scared at this time of night to open the door. Unless it's him. He wouldn't call her name while knocking on the door. He'd only be too aware that she would definitely not open the door if she knew it was him. Not after everything he'd done to her. Another knock, softer. Hesitant. Again, only this time it is accompanied by a voice, soft and muffled. Is someone saying, begging, please? She hesitates, her hand clutching the hem of the long t-shirt she's been using to sleep in since he left. She gazes over the shoulder in, in the darkened room, into the darkened room where she can just make out the black metal hands against the enamel face of the clock. It's past midnight. It was past midnight when she went to bed. Now it's 10 to 1. She's been reading a few pages of a book and she was just about to turn off the light when she heard it. Again, a knock. A flat hand banging on the heart this time, which she feels adds to the scent of despair of her visitor. Curiosity makes her move forward. <coughs> She leans against the door, pressing her ear against the cool painted wood, trying to detect if she can hear something familiar in the voice. There it is again. Please. There is a growing tension in the plea now, which distresses her. She stretches her arm, and her trembling fingers reach for the security chain on the door, one of the aftermaths of him. Please, open the door, please. The voice is muffled. She can't even work out whether it is male or female. Wait, she says. Just wait one sec. She, ha she has made up her mind. Someone needs help. Her help. She turns and, taking the steps two at a time, she runs up the stairs to her bedroom and quickly pulls on her jeans. She taps the pockets. No mobile phone. She will make sure she has it in her hand before she opens the door her fingers ready to make the emergency call, just as a precaution. She dismisses putting on her bra. Instead, she takes a loose, thick cardigan off the hanger and slips her arms in it. 
hesitating for a moment, standing still on the stairs. She can hear repeated knocking, not so loud as to alert her neighbors, but firm, determined and desperate still. And the voice again, now on the edge of crying. She goes down the stairs, her movements almost in slow motion. She's barefooted, but otherwise she's dressed as though it's a cold winter's night. Her hair falls around her face as she fumbles with the key in the lock. She's certain now that the visitor is crying, dispirited, devoid of any hope. Someone really needs her help. It's not kindness that makes her forget any precautions, but curiosity that makes her undo the security chain rather than keep it in place to peer through the gap first to make sure it's safe. Instead, she pulls open the door and is instantly swept aside, her back hitting the wall as someone crashes in as though catapulted towards her. Her breathing stops and her eyes widen in shock and instantly she is overwhelmed by regret. Please, the cards. I need the cards. His face is a pale blur, but his dark eyes are glistening like ice. His solid frame steadies in, the f in front of her as he gazes at her with a steely stare. Then, with a shake of his head, he wipes his forehead with a hand that trembles even more than hers. She inhales deeply, keeping the air in her lungs, lungs for a few seconds. And then she exhales again, releasing the tension as if, as if she recognizes famili familiarity in those eyes, albeit red and brimming with tears. A pulse throbs in her neck and she can hear the blood rushing in her ears. The cards, he whispers. Of course, she says, her voice higher in tone than normal. Would you like to come through? She stifles a nervous laugh behind her hand and points to the unlit room, unlit room behind her, reaching out for the light switch. When she turns to check if he's following her, the light falls across his face. His forehead is streaked with something that can only be dry blood, dried blood. And this is a part of the first chapter. The woman's eyes are the most order, extraordinary color. One is blue and the other is brown. Her eye makeup, waterproof, matches them. From the top of her nose, her eyelids are blue, gradually mixing brown towards the sides. Thick black eyeliner and bright red lipstick are smudged across her face. White bare shoulders. Under her chin, a small silver heart on a necklace is stuck in a strand of wet blonde hair. She doesn't blink when I enter, when I enter the scene of crime t tent and step on the small wooden jetty on the bank of the fishing lake. Having pulled on the white paper suit and shoe covers and dutifully signed this clipboard, I stand in the opening for a moment, carefully taking in the situation. Behind me, a radio crackles. It belongs to the officer standing guard outside the tent keeping a record of everyone entering and leaving the area that has been cordoned off with police tape. On the coast road, drivers slow down, hoping to catch a glimpse of what's going on. A police officer wearing a, a yellow fluorescent jacket over his uniform is gesturing everyone to keep moving. Hi, Andy. A familiar figure turns as a gust of wind disturbs the quietness. David Jamieson nods, frowns and points. 
Obediently, I help myself to a pair of latex gloves. You're late. He closes his case, scratches his ear under the rim of his hat. Apparently, the pathologist is just about to leave, making room for the three figures in white who are now crowding into the limited area. One is kneeling on an aluminium tile, covering the wooden edge of the jerty, with fingerprint powder and sticky tape, concentrating too much to notice me. The planks are grey and weathered, wet from overnight drizzle. His body language suggests he is not hopeful of finding anything useful. His colleague is taking still photos and videos of the crime scene and everything else that might be worth to record, to record. By the look of the red clothes shining beneath the thin white of her suit, I recognize the third person, Andrea Burke. She is hunched down the forensic back. Uh, she, she hunched down between her forensic back and the corpse, briefly looking up and nodding at me by way of greeting. She holds up a clear plastic bag, peers at its contents and scribbles something on the clipboard. The photographer swings his camera around his neck and grins somewhat sheepishly, trying to remember my name. I can tell that he fails by the way he nods. Are you the SIO, Andy? Jameson stamps his feet on the ground, trying to stay warm. For now. I look away, hoping that he won't inquire after my health. Running errands again, he grins to take the edge of his sarcasm. I shrug. Maloney's on his way. Not much forensic evidence, I'm afraid, he says, look, locking his case with a dry click. She's been in the lake for a good few hours. I step aside and peer down, past Burke, who is half obscuring the body, and my eye catches a small mole on the left shoulder of the dead woman. Isn't she dressed? No, no clothes found either. Burke shakes his head, her head, adding sarcastically, I don't think she was going for a swim. She has a sense of humor that I don't always understand, and I suspect it works, works both ways. Do we know who she is? I ask, skipping the questions with obvious answers, and I bend over to look at the victim's face. She's staring at me with vacant eyes, not blinking. I stare back and let the questions in her eyes settle inside me. I feel almost guilty that I can't answer them yet.